With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. HM Podcast, I'm John Miller along with Steve Dace. And we are into the month of June, which we're under days until the start of the college football season. What, what, you're like talking, I see your countdowns out there, Steve. Are you counting down to like practices or games? To games. So we're like sub 90, right? Yeah, you're, I think it's 80 days until Florida, Miami, the first game of the year to kick off the 150th season. The NCAA gave Florida and Miami a waiver to play a week earlier. So ESPN's building a whole uh, 150th anniversary celebration of college football leading up uh, this summer, leading up to that game. And uh, it's Florida, Miami from Orlando in prime time, August 24th. That's the first regular season game of the year. Big Ten media days, by the way, are, what's today? We're taping this on the 3rd. So Big Ten media days are 27, are 45 days away, July 18th. Yeah, July 18th. I just pulled up the um, the press release. What in the world? I mean, these things used to be like the first week of August. It's the fact that it's the earlier start to the season when Labor Day is. So, like, you know, the season's starting before September. So that pushes, all, you know, all the camps will be open in late July. Now, I like this schedule better because everybody's going to get a double bye week, too. You might remember if you about a year or two ago, we did a show. If I was the commissioner of college football, this is what I would do. If I, I would start the season uh, the last weekend in August every year. And the reason I would do it is, yeah, it would take all the all the players one week, one less week of summer vacation. But we could repay them when they need it the most in that they would get everybody. Every team would get two bye weeks to heal up, rest, things of that nature. Right. Throughout the course of a season. I think that's a real, real good idea in this, uh, you know, the, the topics that we have relative to the physicality of the sport. And it is certainly a physical sport. Sure. But I mean, think about these guys all played high school. High school football doesn't start after Labor Day. When's it start? That last week in August for everybody. That's when everybody starts. You know, zero. Yeah. Yeah. So they're used to playing at that point in time. Their 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 body clocks are used to it. The NFL, they'll be playing preseason games the first week of August. So I, I think their body clocks would be better if we lengthened the season not by games but by time and gave them right. more time of rest and recuperation in there. Then you throw in those four weeks where the red shirts can play without losing a year. And you can really get guys a lot of rest during the season, especially with those hamstrings and turf toes. You know, those things that just can freaking linger and linger and linger that only rest help. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's let's do a little bit of a uh, grab bag potpourri, if you will. A few topics this week in the HN podcast. One was a um, a tweet I was replying to. Pat Hardy had a tweet. Just mentioned Iowa football has road games at ISU, at Michigan, at Northwestern, at Wisconsin, and at Nebraska. Uh, he said, just curious how you feel Iowa will do in those games. And then Brett Ridge retweeted it saying, yet CBS ranks Iowa's as the second easiest schedule in the Big Ten. Now, I don't know what 
idiot writer at CBS wrote that. So I'm not going to uh, cast aspersions on the entire uh, CBS network for their dimwittedness. But we'd done a podcast not long ago where I believe you said, Steve, it's one of the it's it's the most difficult Iowa schedule you can recall. It, yeah. it's, it's one of the more difficult. I mean, it, it's it's downright difficult. And I reply, I said, that's just stupid. That's one of the toughest schedules in the country, to which someone replied. And I'm not going to say their name because I'm not sure he was really looking to argue. Um, he said Auburn, South Carolina and Stanford, no particular order, have probably the three hardest schedules in 2019. So being that you and I love things like this, I wanted to circle you in it. I actually went and did some research. And I'll be curious for your objective opinion as to who has the harder schedule. Granted, each of them is hard. So Stanford. So I went in and I found um, I found a consensus, uh, a consensus top 25, if you will. I can't remember who put it together, but it was a, a consensus of the preseason top 25 that I found that has like ESPN. Oh, Bill Bender and the Sportiers did that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bill's a great guy, by the way. Really, really good conscientious writer. Yeah. Okay. So I looked at that. So I went through Stanford, Auburn, South Carolina, and Iowa's schedules, looking at the number of teams in that, you know, pre, pre, preseason consensus top 25 that they had. Auburn, our Stanford plays six. Auburn plays six. South Carolina plays five. And Iowa plays six. So we're like, okay, that's all pretty that's all pretty close. Stanford gets four at home, two on the road. Auburn has two at home, three on the road, and one is a neutral. South Carolina has three at home and two on the road. Iowa with one at home and five on the road. So uh, Iowa has five of those ranked teams as road games. Stanford and South Carolina have two as road games, and Auburn has three. Now, I would also say, from what I've seen, Auburn and South Carolina, they're playing teams that are ranked probably in the top 12, the top half of that top 25 more so than what Iowa is. Iowa has a number of ranked teams, but you're talking about teams that they have ranked, you know, 16 through 25. But, I mean, it's it's – to say Iowa has the second softest schedule in the Big Ten is ludicrous. When it, Steve, you've been looking over these things, and you made that statement like a month ago. Based upon what you've seen, have you um, have you backed off your stance on Iowa's schedule any from that podcast? No, I think it was Tom Fornelli at CBS Sports did this analysis, and and I don't get it. You know, I I don't understand. He had Michigan with the second toughest schedule in the country. I think I know a thing or two about Michigan football and this schedule is about the most given the division we're in and the fact we're always going to play either Notre Dame or a major power five team every year. We have about the most favorable setup we could get where we're playing all those teams at home and the road games, Penn state and Wisconsin are always tough to go play on the road, but those are teams coming off for them anyway, uniquely high amounts of attrition. So mm-hmm. personnel-wise, they're not as strong as they typically are. I mean, for me as a Michigan fan, I'm like, this is about as favorable as we could get. And he ranked it the number two toughest schedule in the country. So I don't, I don't understand the methodology. I think Iowa's schedule is absolutely the toughest schedule in the Big Ten. Because I think the thing, too, is it's also commiserate to your talent, you know, who you have. Now, my personnel numbers say Iowa's personnel 
that they're going to put on the field is slightly better than all of those teams you just mentioned. Um, it doesn't even have, I don't even have Stanford as a top 25 roster. I have, well, I take it back. Auburn's a top 10 roster. I think actually, no, they're 11th in my roster rankings. Auburn's 11th, but they're tied for 10th. I just gave Texas A&M the tiebreaker because they have the returning starting quarterback. So Auburn, for all intents and purposes, has a top 10 roster. South Carolina's, I want to say, is 24th or 25th in my rankings. Stanford is not a top 25 roster this year. I think Iowa's going to come in around 18th or 19th in my rankings. So when you look at that and then start stacking up the rest of those teams, you know, I can just tell you, I don't have it in front of me, but I've, I've worked these numbers so many times in the last few weeks. A lot of those are teams um, that, in the case of Michigan, Iowa's about 25 points of roster points behind them. And then the rest of those road games are all teams that are with, that those teams are all within like 10 points of Iowa. So those are total toss-up games. And and I, I have no I and, and I'm not even talking about, by the way, Iowa State. Yeah. And and this could, you know, I mean, Iowa State has been it hasn't been in a hasn't been a consensus preseason top twenty-five team, John, since I talked Tom Deanhart into ranking him in the top twenty-five in the Sporting News magazine in two thousand and five. So that's almost fifteen years. Now you throw in a road game to there where Iowa has struggled historically under Ferentz, but they're actually under on their best run against Iowa State they've had under Ferentz in recent years. And given the way that game went down last year where Iowa State didn't really get the warm-up game because of the weather cancellation, and then they had to go in to Iowa City in a unique environment and set up and schedule, you know Matt Campbell, that's, that's kind of like the one box he's checked I mean, if I would have, or he hasn't checked, if I would have told you that Iowa State would beat Oklahoma before they beat Iowa when he took over, we all would have laughed, but that <laughs> happened, okay? So if there, if there is one red-letter game Matt Campbell has on his schedule, it is that game with Iowa having to make the return trip to Ames this year. So I'm not even, we're not even, we didn't even bring that game up. I, I don't know a team in college football that has a tougher collection of road games um, than, than, than Iowa does. Now, I think Auburn has a, has a tough schedule, but this is also the year they get Georgia and Alabama at home. And remember, two years ago when they did that, they almost became the first two-loss team to make the playoff. They beat Alabama. That was one of the worst losses Nick Saban's gotten since he's been in Tuscaloosa. They beat Georgia when Georgia was number one. And then what happened is uh, on Johnson, their All-American running back, got hurt. And was and was barely able to play in the SEC championship game, and Georgia ended up winning that game. Otherwise, Auburn was number two in the in the playoff rankings with two losses heading into the SEC title game, and would have made the playoff had they won that game with two losses. So this is they do have a tough schedule, but this is the year they get Alabama and Georgia at home. That rotates every other year. A and M A and M's road schedule maybe now that I think about it, it's up there. It might be tougher than Iowa's. I mean, they're they're playing Alabama and Clemson on the road. So it almost doesn't matter what the rest of Iowa's road schedule is when <laughs> you say that. Right, um, right. But it, Iowa's playing, I think it's the toughest schedule I can remember them playing since I've covered the team on a regular basis, which would go back to 1999, 2000. So really the whole Ferentz era. It's one of the toughest road schedules for a Big Ten team. In my time doing a football preview, and I've done one every year since I was a sophomore in high school in 1988, it's one of the toughest road schedules when you throw in that Iowa State road tilt. I can ever remember a Big Ten team that had ambitions playing, right? I mean, if you're a bad team, you always look at your schedule like that's a really tough schedule. 
you know, Rutgers is playing a tough schedule every year. Okay. But for a team with ambitions, Iowa's road schedule is as hard as I can remember in, in my time covering the sport as a fan, a, a Big Ten team having. Let's go to the announcement from Monday as we record this with the uh, Iowa-Iowa State annual Cyhawk game, the football game, if you will, um, being extended to 2025. Now, there have been times in the past, Steve, where I've been a vocal advocate for ending this series. And primarily the reason for that is I wanted it to matter to both fan bases, to both programs, if you will, and not so much to be, well, if Iowa loses this game, it, it, it gets way more crap on its shoes than it otherwise should have. And if it wins, well, the folks around the nation that don't know anything about the heart of this game think, well, of course, they should win. I, want, I wanted for Iowa State to step its game up on a, on a Big 12 level. None of that's to say Iowa State hasn't been game for the game. And that in a game like this, you can throw out, you know, what you're going to be later in the year. I mean, you were close, close to a man and Dan McCartney who basically got this thing to be a rivalry and threw his emotion into it, unlike anything else. Well, Iowa State is that's not patronizing, by the way. I saw that. That is the absolute truth. Dan McCartney treated the Iowa game. It was a bowl game. It was separate from every other game on their schedule. I saw it with my own eyes. Yes. No doubt about it. And at that point in time, it, I mean, Iowa had won 15 in a row. And Iowa State's football program was one of the five or six worst in the country, period. Um, but now it's not the case. You just mentioned a few minutes ago, Iowa State has beaten Oklahoma. Iowa State has beaten Tech. Iowa State beating anyone in the Big 12 anymore, anywhere in the Big 12, meaning Homer Road, it's not a surprise. It's not a shock. Their program is standing on its own two legs right now, reputationally, beyond the borders of the region. That, to me, changes the narrative of the Iowa-Iowa State game to where I'm fine with them playing it. And they've extended it to the 2025 season. And, you know, a few years ago when you had that, that, that over, I mean, these games have been incredibly exciting uh, as of very late. And I think this year's game, gosh, how far do we have to go back when you're looking at two teams with the talent anticipation like these two have? Do we have to go back to 2005? Yeah, I would think probably. I think probably that year. Iowa came in number eight. Iowa State was ranked in the preseason, but then had that terrible game against Illinois State. They probably should have lost and fell out and then turned around the next week and and beat number eight Iowa, and I think that's the that's the first time in school history Iowa State had beaten a top ten team in the AP poll. Um, I uh, uh, or at least it was in the non conference. They might have beaten a Nebraska in the Earl Bruce era when they were a top ten team or an Oklahoma, but in terms of a non conference game, I think that's the first time they ever won a non conference game against a top ten team. Last summer, I pulled out, I hadn't watched it in so long, the DVD of you and I's pregame show before that game. Oh, my god! We did our, 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 our uh, like a on-site game day for Mediacom. It was my, one of the coolest it, things I was ever a part yes, of, actually. It, it absolutely was, and I'm glad I never did it again. But I'm glad <laughs> I did it that one time. <laughs> I, I forgot how many people were there 
I mean, my. It was insane. It was it and it was, literally, was like 100 uh, degrees that day too, if you'll recall. I mean, it was it, scorching it was. hot that day. It was. And it was I was really also hot. carrying a good 100, you know, some odd pounds more than I am now. So I was, I was really feeling it that day. I could even look at myself and tell. But um, you know, and when we, when you and I would have this conversation in years past, from an Iowa State perspective, I'm kind of, I was kind of like until you know Matt Campbell you know, took this program to a different level, you know, if I'm Iowa State at the end of the year, man, it's getting to bowl eligibility. Why don't I follow the Bill Snyder model? But here's what I think has changed. Um, And what I, and and you're, and Iowa is at a a disadvantage. When you have a non-conference rivalry, it's different. Moving on to our next topic, 2020 College Football Hall of Fame ballot is out. And there is uh, a distinctly Iowa flavor to this, Steve. Several Hawkeyes on this list. Dallas Clark. First of all, Dallas Clark being eligible for the Hall of Fame, College Football Hall of Fame. Boy, uh, that doesn't make you feel old, does it? It makes, it makes me want to have our podcast sponsored by Blue Chewy. That's what it does. <laughs> I don't even know what that is, but I have an idea of what it is. And I don't, I don't want that. I don't need that, frankly. Tim Dwight. Iowa kick returner, wide receiver. 1997 was his senior year. I will, I will, we'll come back to my thoughts on, our thoughts on some of these guys here in a second. And then, um, was it Andre? Is Andre and, Tippett? Andre Tippett, yeah. Andre Tippett, one of the first Iowa football stars that I distinctly remember. Uh, a fearsome defensive lineman for Iowa. Uh, consensus first-team All-American for Iowa in 1981, led Iowa to the uh, 82 Rose Bowl bid, uh, its first bowl game since 1959. Two-time first-team All-American. I believe he was also a junior college player, uh, if memory serves correctly, and memory may not serve correctly, so I apologize if I've got that wrong, but that's rattling around my head. Hey, sometimes we actually do these shows without a ton of preparation, but I think that he was. Uh, Tim Dwight, Steve, to me, Probably my all-time favorite college football player still to this day. Uh, when he would go back to return a punt, it was, you know, I was, you know, 1997 was a a year that I uh, still imbibed quite a bit in the alcoholic beverages. And I was single and I was in Kansas City and we watched the games at Fuzzy South. And every time Tim Dwight was going to go back and return a punt, I would stand up and yell out, uh, Tim, eh. Uh, that was before South Park, by the way. And... <laughs> I can't believe you just admitted. Dude, I, I was 26 single and I was a drunk. I'm 48 married. And you, know, you, so sound like, years. You, know, you sound like you sound like Pennywise the Clown. Danny. Or, or no, well, actually, not, you sound like uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Danny, Danny boy. That's what you sound I'm like. Not, I'm not watching either of those movies. I've never Chase seen Tim Bright through any uh, through any mode uh, hedges of a maze, maybe anytime soon. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's funny that you mentioned that. Let's localize this even more. So I was in Kansas City, and then a couple of years later, I'm over at my friend Bill Lovtinsky's apartment in Olathe. And Bill, uh, I grew up actually nearby town from him. He was from West Liberty. I was from West Branch. We grew up same grade, playing against each other, junior high track, blah, 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 blah. But we became good friends down there. He was actually an usher in my wedding. This is before I met you. And I'm over at his apartment in Olathe, Kansas. And he's like, hey, you got to come over here. I got a new neighbor. Like, okay. So I go over there 
And his neighbor is this big, giant, hulking Samoan of a man. And my friend Bill's like, hey, John, I want you to meet my neighbor, Epi Epinesa. I'm like, hey, Epi, what's up? I remember you played for Iowa. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. So we were sitting there talking, and I was going on and on about how much I liked Tim Dwight. I didn't realize that the Epi and Tim were um, were college roommates and best friends. I mean, they obviously played on the team together. But they were really tight. So one night, you know, we were all having a few beers, and Epi called up Dwight and uh, put me on the phone with him. And at the time, I thought that was really cool. It's really embarrassing now that I say all this out loud and in real time, having not thought this through. No, that's not embarrassing, actually. That's, I mean, as long as you didn't go like, hey, remember when you did Let It Be? That was great. Yeah, I, I did not Chris Farley on that. Yeah, no. But the, this would have been, that last part would have been totally cool if you wouldn't have started out with, and I used to get drunk. Timmy. Timmy. <laughs> that's, that's what made it bad. That, that made it weird. Yeah, that made it weird. <laughs> Anyhow, and yes, uh, the, the rest is uh, the rest is history on the Epinesa front. So that's kind of why I had the inside scoop on the uh, Epinesa commitment a few years ago. So, but yeah, Tim Dwight was just an, just electrifying. I mean, you, he, he torched your Wolverines one Saturday after. I think, I think you guys had the last laugh that day. Um, was that, well, that was the 97 as well, where he, when he returned the kick yep. right before halftime. Last and, play of the half. Yeah, that's right. It was the last play of the half. And Iowa went up 21 to 7 at halftime. And it was, if I remember right, I haven't watched that punt return in a while, but if I remember right, I think he reversed field. He did. Punt return. Yep. And uh, John Jansen was was our captain on that team. And he hosts uh, a show on uh, the, they finally launched that, that Big Ten channel on Sirius XM. They interviewed me for it like three years ago. It finally launched. And he does the morning show on there. Dude, he brings, I, even though Michigan came back and won that game, and that was the game that uh, caused the huge controversy with the local, I think it was the Iowa, um, what's the student newspaper on campus there? What's it called? Daily Iowan. Daily Iowan, that's right. And some sports writer for the Daily Iowan referred to Matt Sherman as a, quote, active tomfoolery. Do you remember this? Who, because he was terrible in that game. He threw an interception right to Sam Sword that lost the game for Iowa. And uh, he got game, hurt. He go hurt ahead. his hand in that game, or maybe after the yeah. game, but yes. His career, like, never recovered from that game, actually. Oh, he's done. Yeah, Randy Reiners ended up being there. There's a blast in the past. I can't remember. I even remember that name. But uh, John Jansen brings that game up all the time. Like, some, that game must have scarred him. That, that perform, and he talks about Tim Dwight constantly all right so you know and he did it in the super bowl as well he was like the only bright spot for the falcons in the super bowl that year in john elway's last game um a unique athlete uh force of nature kind of a player and ahead of his time uh if if he would have been around if he would have come around 10 15 years later with today's spaced out off spread out offenses Mm-hmm. And the ability to, you know, the, the, the bubble screens. I know I used to mock, you know, the old Iowa offensive coordinator for the bubble screen. But can you imagine what a guy like Tim Dwight would do? How many people he would house with those kinds of plays nowadays? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So a, kind of a guy that uh, was a little bit ahead of his time as a player. And, the, and the, the skill talent on that team, that team should have been, was kind of the clue. Maybe we were coming to the end of the Hayden era, because when you have arguably the best defensive lineman 
Iowa has ever had in Jared DeVries, who John Jansen also says when he's ever asked, name the one guy in college you couldn't block. He always says it's Jared DeVries. Couldn't block him. Um, you talk about the skill players of Tim Dwight and Damon Gibson on the outside, both pros. Um, you've got uh, um, Tavian Banks, who just could crease you on any down. That team should have never gone seven and four. And then they lost Arizona State in the Sun Bowl to go seven and five. That team should have never gone seven and five. Uh, no. He was a part of that team, big part of that team. No, it, it shouldn't. And then there, some younger talent. Kevin Casper was a member of that yeah. team. Uh, Mike Goff along the offensive line. Was it like Terry it, Cooks in that team in the secondary and some of those guys? Um, Eric Thigpen was. Uh, uh, Kerry Cooks was. Yep. Yeah, Plez Atkins. Yeah. Vernon Rollins. Matt Hughes. Raj Clark. That team. Mm. How the hell did that team go seven? Ryan Lofton. Uh, Epi was a, a, you know, a, a plugger on that team. Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, I remember it, it, that year you guys had to play us in Ohio State. I think back to back on the road, right? Something like that. Um, yeah. Pull the schedule up. I, I know Iowa was. They were definitely a top ten team. Um, they started out. Here's how Iowa started that season: sixty six nothing against Northern Iowa, uh, and I can't remember if Tavy. No, that was different. Sixty six nothing. Then they beat Iowa. They beat Tulsa. I'm sorry, fifty four to sixteen. Then they beat Iowa State 63-20. to I was actually at that game, living in KC, drove a bus up there. I rode along with Captain Morgan that day. Illinois, they beat 38-10. And then they lost. <laughs> Dude, that was a whole freaking fifth. I should have known then. I should have known then. <laughs> wow. Uh, Johnny! Um, <laughs> Uh, Ohio State, they lost 23-7 in Michigan the next. Number seven, Ohio State, and then number five, Michigan. The, and they lost 28-24 to Michigan, which just put me in such a pissy mood. I remember going Shouldn't out. Shouldn't have lost to any of the rest of those teams on that schedule. No, and then they, yeah, then they lost later to 13-10 to Wisconsin. 15 how, do, how do you score 10 points with all, those, with all those skill players? How do you do that? I was going to say because Sherman was out, but the next game after they played Michigan, um, they beat Indiana sixty-two to nothing, and then they beat Purdue thirty-five to seventeen. Yeah, and they lost, and then they lost thirteen ten to Wisconsin and fifteen fourteen to Northwestern. I think Reiner's had a pretty bad day, and anyhow, that that's the most disappointed as a fan that I've been for a football game, for a football season that I've ever been. The most disappointed as an Iowa fan I've been was, of course, the eighty-seven loss to UNLV in the in the basketball tournament. But a lot of talent. You're right. Shocked Andre Tippett is not in. I bet you that's a guy a lot of voters are going to look at and say, he's not in. I mean, when I saw his name today, I was surprised he was not in. Um, So I I could, I could, of the three, you, of the three Iowa people, I would, I probably think he's got the best chance because just because he's been, you know, out of the game for so long and made a huge mark in the NFL uh, was the lynch pit of those Patriot teams in the eighties that, one of which got to the Super Bowl, got annihilated by the Bears. But he's been around. He's been he's done a lot for football, scouting and other things. I would imagine that that's a name today that a lot of the voters are looking at. And they're like, how did this guy not already get in? So I, I could see that being an oversight that gets corrected maybe before the other two names that we're talking about. Right. Let, let's alternate now. I, I don't know if you have the list in front of you or not, um, but maybe go over some names that that are worth. How many next- am I allowed? Let's do this. I don't have it. I don't have it in front of me, which is good because then I can do it off the cuff. How many can I vote for? Do you know what the rules are? Uh, let me go here and look. 
Um, let's see. I don't think I don't think it says anywhere in here, Steve. So let's just go with five. Um, and I'll let you go, you know, you can bring up five. I mean, there are so many good names on this. Let me, let me just go through some names here. And then you probably got, you probably memorized this committed to memory, but, uh, Morton Anderson is on this list. The Michigan and state kicker, yeah. Michigan state kicker, first team all American in, in 1981. He's still, the reason I'm mem- re- mentioning him, he still holds the record for the longest field goal in big 10 history, mm-hmm. 63 yards. In uh, in 1981, uh, Eric Bieniemy, Colorado running back, he is on the list. Keith Byers. Remember Darian Hagan and Bieniemy? How they used to do that? They'd be like 30 yards downfield and then pitch. Do you remember that on those Colorado teams? How sweet that was when they would run the option like that. Oh like, yeah, they, they kept that two that four two relationship. Yeah, that was uh, that that used to be sweet. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I just you just took me back to my. Uh, junior high days when I was a quarterback running the veer. And that was one of the things I remembered, even though I didn't always execute on it. I was more interested in pretending to be hurt. So I didn't have to play quarterback. Uh, <laughs> Keith Byers, just a monster of a man running. He's got to be in. That's an, that's an automatic play. I mean, finalist, it, multiple all American. He's got to be in. He was almost like the college version of a Christian. Okoye. That's even, a great analogy, but he had better footwork. Yep. Than Okoye did. He was so much fun to watch. Mark Carrier, USC defensive back. Uh, we already mentioned Dallas Clark. Tim Couch, uh, just a high-flying quarterback at Kentucky. A 1998 SEC Player of the Year who led the Cats to their first one over Alabama in 75 years. He set seven NCAA, 14 SEC, and 26 school records. I think people uh, forget how good he was because he was the number one pick of the expansion Browns and it didn't work out. And so I think people forget how good he was in college. Eric Dickerson, unanimous first-team All-American, third in Heisman in 1992, twice named the Southwestern Conference Player of the Year. Uh, he ran for 4,450 4, yards. He obviously was one of the most graceful, talented running backs I've ever seen play. But – his college career will forever be tainted by scandal. Yeah, I mean, that ESPN 30 for 30 on SMU where the old A&M, Texas A&M coach goes, we were trying to buy Eric Dickerson and thought we had him. And and then when he signed with SMU, we were like, how the hell did they get him? And then when he showed up to school the next day with that yellow Trans Am, we kind of knew and we were like, dude, respect, you outbid us. Um, I, I think um, Dickerson, I'm, I'm fine with all the names you've mentioned so far. But if I only get five, I've got two automatics right now. Byers and Dickerson are automatics. They are, are so I've got three left. Those two are automatics to me. I mean, you talked about running that uh, the Colorado Veer, um, and it was more full house. I, we used to play around in our in our backyards. This is eighty. You know, this was what eighty two. I was eleven years old. And we you mean would, the Pony Express. That would have been eighty two. Pony Express. Yeah. 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 We we'd pretend to be the Pony Express, and yeah. and that's before. Dude, that, this, this is like ESPN. Yeah, it was around. But in West Branch, we didn't have cable. You know, so and SMU wasn't exactly – we didn't have all these primetime games. They were so big time that yep. an 11-year-old John Miller knew about them and his friends in West Branch, Iowa. The sky and, blue tearaway jerseys with the red uh, trim. They used to play at the Dallas Cowboy Stadium with the giant star, him and Craig James. Yeah. 
obviously you remember Hayden Fry coached for SMU, right? Yeah. That was not that era, but yeah. No, it, it was not that era. But there, Hayden Fry, the, the legend suggests that Hayden Fry helped inspire the name of a sports car. You heard this story? I have not, no. Legend has it, and I don't know if it's true or not, that Lee Iacocca, who was at the time vice president of Ford Motor Company, and they were looking to roll out uh, a new sports car design in the spring of 1964. And in the fall of 1963, Lee apparently witnessed Michigan beat South Southern Methodist 27-16. And Iacocca was so taken with the way that SMU played, he allegedly entered the visitor's locker room to address the dejected team. And I'm quoting autonews.com article. Quote, this is where Mustangs came from? This is where I... You're, you're the worst. <laughs> I've been told that in so many different contexts now. Thank you. You are a living turd in a punch bowl. <laughs> After watching SMU play with such flair, we reached the decision we will call our new car the Mustang. I can top that story. Please do. Hopefully I know it so I can piss all over it. uh, Bear Bryant purposefully scheduled USC to come play at Alabama on national television um, with their All-American fullback, uh, Sam Bam Cunningham, who was black. And he did it knowing his team had no chance against the integrated USC team in the hopes that they would come into, into Birmingham and kick his team's ass so he could finally desegregate the Alabama football program. And it worked. Cunningham came in that day, and USC ran over, around, and through Alabama. The Bear went into the USC locker room for a photo op, made sure all the reporters went with him, congratulated USC, and as they mopped the floor with Alabama in their own crib, and the Bear made his point, and that's how he desegregated the Alabama football program. In the George Wallace era. Not exactly the naming of a Mustang, but maybe a little bit more historically impactful. Yeah, just, you know, a, a, a less exciting story. But nonetheless, <laughs> you've told it here before. And I, you know, it was important enough I didn't want to pee on it. So I let you tell it. So I was just, that, see, I was trying to come over the top rope of douchery with that. So, oh, dude, full elbow smash top rope. Mission accomplished. Thank you. Was that, was that douche-tastic enough for you? Was it douche-tastic? <laughs> it, so, it was such a dick move that it's funny. <laughs> <laughs> so not only did it. I pee in your Cheerios, but then I came over the top rope with social oh, commentary yeah. to make you look even, more, even yes. more trivial. Yes. That's fantastic. David Fulcher. I'm going to tell you why I'm even mentioning his name. He was a defensive back. You remember Arizona what State. Yeah. Yes, he did. He's the uh, two-time first-team All-American, consensus in 84 and 85, three-time All-Pac-10 selection, 14 INTs. But the reason I mention him has nothing to do 
with his college career. And I don't even remembering him step on the field for the Cincinnati Bengals. He was on the field with Siasen, Icky, Icky Woods. Yes, he James was. Teams. Yeah. And, this re- and this release did not mention his pro team, the Cincinnati Bengals. I remember that one. Why? Because Cincinnati was my sleeper, sexy, hard-to-beat, Tecmo Bowl team. Mm. And with Fulcher was one of the fastest players in the game yeah. outside of Bo Jackson. I forgot about that. And yeah. he played that key critical cornerback slot that you could use that basically took away the opponent's runs to the bottom of the screen. Fulcher was a beast. And like when a he rover soccer. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When he was healthy, dude, he could get back and cover anybody. That's why James Fulcher... Damn near may deserve inclusion just because of his technical prowess. Um, Tony Gonzalez, California tight end. Not a bad, not a bad player. I'm not uh, sure, sure he wasn't a better basketball player in college, frankly, but okay. Yeah, um, Dan Hampton, the Danimal, more maybe as a, as a pro. Pro, yeah. Josh Heupel, more modern day, 2000 Heisman Trophy winner. Yeah. To me, I think Tim Couch has got to go in before Josh Heupel. That's just my opinion. James Laurinaitis, linebacker, Ohio State. Three One time, of the first, more underrated. Three-time first-team All-American. Yeah. Three times. Yeah. One of the more underrated historical great players in Big Ten history. He's got to he, be on your list. He's not, he, You know what? That's an automatic for me. So that's three. That's an auto autoplay. Three-time so first-team All-American and yeah. two-time Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year who led the Buckeyes to two national championship games and yeah. four consecutive comp titles. That's a guarantee. Yeah, that's uh, an autoplay. I agree. Ray Lewis is on the list. Ed McCaffrey for Stanford is on the list. Cade McNown. Mm. Uh, now that's an interesting choice because that's another guy that I think we forget how great he was in college because he flamed out in the NFL as a first-round pick. First-team consensus All-American in 98. Uh, Johnny United's Golden Arm Award. In 98, Pac-10 Co-Offensive Player of the Year, led UCLA to consecutive Pac-10 titles in 97 and 98. Still holds numerous school records. Uh, Leslie O'Neill, another Tecmo Bowl player uh, on on San Diego, played defensive tackle for Oklahoma State. Yeah. Yeah, he played with, Uh, um, who was the guy? Dexter Manley with the Redskins. They played together. Dexter Manley, remember, was the guy that, that Oklahoma State gave him a degree even though he couldn't read. Couldn't spell cat. No, that was uh, Terry Bradshaw. Yeah, he could not. He, he admitted it. And in one of those uh, teary NFL Today interviews back in the 80s, he admitted he got a college degree without being able to read. Mm. Let's go to Carson Palmer. He was pretty good. He's an autoplay. Absolute autoplay, don't you think? He's got to be an autoplay. Well, I would say yes. But here's another one that, for me, is an autoplay. And that's Antoine randall Antoine Randall has a special place in my heart because my one of my first years covering the Big Ten luncheon, and it might have been the first year, I actually went to the luncheon, and they had these things with these autographed balls where all the coaches signed them. And the, the tradition is all the coaches... And then they, they throw them out, and then they throw, they throw them out to people who and sit and in the quarterbacks and you throw, got one. throw them out to you. Yeah. And it, Sorry, Antoine I just Randall returned the favor. <laughs> You're right. That does suck. <laughs> it hurts. 
We're both storytellers. That really pissed me off. You're right. I, I, that, I, I'm going to remember that next time. You're right. I didn't like that. You're right. <laughs> but yes. I and I'm looking at I bet right you now, didn't like it. My, I'm looking at it right now in my man cave. That ball is on top of one of my bookshelves, and it's a ball that Antoine Randall threw to me. But I'd still put Carson Palmer in ahead of him. First player in FBS history to pass for 6,000 yards and rush for 3,000 in a career and rush for more yards than any quarterback in FBS history upon the conclusion of his career. Mm. And yeah, right. Carson you, Palmer you, 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 was good. But we're talking about career that no one in the history of the sport had ever done. Here's the other thing, too. Name name one other starter on his on, that he played with on those Indiana teams in the late 90s. I don't know. I probably have an amalgamation of 17 different six foot four receivers. They sucked. They weren't any good. I mean, could you imagine what he would do in today's spread offenses? What oh, he would do? my. Dude, can you imagine the, the, the money he would have made in the NFL today? Yeah. I mean, dude, he, I mean, he still he made a good penny when they switched him to receiver. But yeah, in the, with the Steelers. But yeah, you're right. All right. You ch- you've changed my mind. You've won this argument. Antoine Randall is an autoplay before Carson Palmer. So that's four. I, I bet if I bet if you could ask Kirk Ferentz when his career is over and he and he cared about it, and he actually might like this topic more now than he likes talking about his teams and himself. If you could name the 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 starting quarterback, the most feared quarterback that you faced as, as a Big Ten coach, I, I bet Antoine Randall is number one on this list. Mm. I've just heard him talk about him so many times. Uh, Simeon Rice, linebacker at Illinois, Rashawn it- Salam. Heisman yeah. Trophy winner passed away. Yeah. First ever uh, Heisman uh, Trophy winner. To, first guy to win the Heisman Trophy, Rashawn Salam, coming from eight-man football in high school. little factoid uh, there. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, C.J. Spiller, Clemson running back kick returner. He passed away too. Yeah. He was dangerous. Aaron Taylor, Notre Dame offensive line, offensive tackle. He might be close to an autoplay. His resume is really impressive. Troy Vincent, defensive back from Wisconsin in 91. And that's back. He was like their only good football player for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Um, going through, I think those are the most notables. And then coaching candidates, Larry Blake, uh, Blakeney at Troy. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. That's it. I think we hit him. So I'll tell you what, five. we'll do the four auto plays and, and we'll do play, we'll play Homer here at the end of the podcast. And give the fifth one to Andre Tippett because he should have been in already, I think. So there's our five. Okay. There's five. And I think that probably um, wraps up this installment of the podcast. We're going to have some fun on the Bigger Ten podcast this week as well. So please tune in for that. For Steve, I'm John. We'll talk to you soon.